Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. You know who my favorite team is, right? Jesus. Always go with Jesus. All right. Well, many of you know me. For those of you that don't, uh, I was born and raised in the New York, New Jersey area. Basically lived there my entire life until I moved here uh, to Dallas a few years ago. And what you've probably also heard me say is that my favorite city in the world is New York City. But I actually just love big cities in general. Whether it's New York or London or New Delhi, something comes alive inside of me when I'm in a big city. From the the lights to the crowded sidewalks to the traffic congested streets to the towering skyscrapers. For some of you, that sounds like a nightmare. But for me, that's living the dream. That's beautiful. And so it might make sense that as I was growing up, I just never really cared too much about nature. It just wasn't my deal. Like I wasn't one of those people that wanted to go hiking in the mountains or took a walk to enjoy nature. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that I just move really fast. That's my natural pace in life. And so I actually never took the time to enjoy nature. Uh, that's changed as I've gotten older. I think I've gotten slower. But, but also, it's changed because... I think I've begun to take the time to do that. I really love being outdoors. I love experiencing God's creation. But a lot of that change happened for me many years ago when I took a trip to Scottsdale, Arizona, and I went to see the Grand Canyon. Now, to be honest, I didn't really care about seeing the Grand Canyon. I went because people said, hey, if you're in Arizona, if you're anywhere near the Grand Canyon, you've got to go and see it. But I wasn't really excited about it, wasn't really interested in it, Because to me, the Grand Canyon was just a really big hole in the ground. I'm from New Jersey. You know what we call that? A pothole. So the Grand Canyon was just a really big pothole. Who cares? It's a big deal. But I went because I wanted to say that I had been to the Grand Canyon. And so we took this amazing drive up to the Grand Canyon. It's about four or five hours from Scottsdale. And as we went the elevation increased, the temperature dropped, and the landscape changed dramatically. And I just never had seen or experienced anything like that before. And so we finally got to the Grand Canyon. And I remember jumping out of this van that I was in, and I went right to the edge of the canyon. And as I stood there, I just felt absolute awe at all that was before me. As I stood there, the vastness of it was so overwhelming that I was stunned into silence. And if you know me, that's shocking, because I'm rarely at a loss for words. But truly, I had no words. The only thoughts that came to my mind were these. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. As I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, my first thought, my first question wasn't, how did this come to be? No, no, my first thought, my first question was, why would God create like this? Why would he create such beauty? Such majesty. 
as I looked at the different layers of reds and yellows and oranges that almost seemed to be painted onto the rock formations and, and the broken cliffs, I just stood in sheer awe of God. The splendor and beauty of the Grand Canyon pointed me to the splendor and beauty of God. All this week, you've been studying creation. You've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And often, when we come to the biblical creation account, we ask the question, how? We want to know, how did the world begin? Was it evolution or was it the Big Bang Theory? But I'd like to suggest to you this morning, that's actually the wrong question to ask when we come to this text. I'm not telling you it's a bad question. I'm just telling you Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer the question, how did the world begin? The question that Genesis 1 is trying to answer, the question that we should ask when we come to this text is, why did God create the world? As I gazed upon this masterpiece of God's creation, I wasn't moved to ask how. The the beauty of the Grand Canyon caused me to ask why. And in the same way, as we come to the biblical creation account, as we look at Genesis 1, We ought not to ask how. We ought to ask why. Why did God create the world? And the answer that we will find is this. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. So here's all I want to do. I want us to look at the biblical creation account and focus specifically on Genesis 1. And I want to offer four observations of creation that each have an implication for your life. Four observations of creation, four implications for your life. Four observations, four implications. Make sense? Let's go. Okay, observation one. God created the world and he created it out of nothing. Genesis 1 and 2 reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God created the world. The Hebrew word for created is bara. It's this verb that's only used in the scriptures. And the only time it's used is when when God is the subject. Bara conveys the idea of a special activity accomplished only by God that results in newness. Bara also refers to the product created and does not refer to the material of which it is made. And so for these reasons, theologians have interpreted this word to mean to create out of nothing. By using the verb bara, what the writer is trying to show us is that God is the only creator of all that exists. As we read the biblical creation account, we need to have an understanding of the many other creation accounts of the ancient world. See, none of them were trying, none of these stories were trying to answer the question, did God create the world? Rather, they were trying to answer the question, which God and why? And as we gain a better understanding of the ancient world's many creation accounts, it helps us understand what the biblical creation account is trying to teach us. And so let me give you two examples. The Sumerians had no specific creation story, but there were descriptions of creation that appear in a few of their texts. And so basically there's two traditions that they held. In one, heaven, represented by the god An, is united with earth. 
represented by the goddess Antum. And they fertilized the earth, causing life to spring up, humans and animals and vegetation. In the other tradition, Anki, the god of fertility, produces a spring that carries life to the earth through streams and rivers. And so the earth is, is, flourishes in this way. And in both of these traditions, humans exist. They're created to serve the gods, to do the work of the gods. Now, perhaps the best-known ancient creation account, besides the biblical account, is the Akkadian creation account called the Enuma Elish. The story is lengthy and bloody, and it's basically this story of a power struggle among the gods that's driven by jealousy and anger. And the story tells of this epic battle among the gods. It's centered around Marduk, who's the king of the gods, and his defeat of Tiamat, who's the being of chaotic waters. Marduk kills Tiamat and he splits her body in two, one half becoming the sky and the other half becoming the earth. And then Marduk orders Ea, another one of the gods, to make humans out of the blood of the leader of the rebel gods. Again, the reason for making humans is so that they could do the work of the gods. Now, all of this sounds like a really bad sci-fi movie, but this is what the ancient world believed. Glenn Packiam says this about the significance of the biblical creation account. The biblical creation account reveals an entirely different view of how the world began. In contrast to the many gods that fill the scenes of other creation stories, the ancient Near East, in, in the ancient Near East, Israel's God, Yahweh, stands set apart as the sole sovereign over creation. There is no division of divine jurisdiction, no God of the sea and a God of land and a God of war. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. In the ancient mythologies, the world is never created out of nothing. It always starts with something, whether it's the blood of the gods or some other material or matter. But in the biblical account, Yahweh stands alone as the sole creator of the universe, and he creates it out of nothing. So here's the implication of this truth for our lives. As the creator of the world, our God is sovereign and all-powerful. There is no other God but this God, and he alone is sovereign. He alone is in control. And as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now, the sovereignty of God not only means he's in control, but it means that he makes the right decisions for us. And so we can trust him. Not only does he make the right decisions, but he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And so he's able to act on the decisions he makes for us. I make lots of decisions every single day, but the vast majority of them, I'm powerless to do anything about. I can't make them happen. They're out of my control. They're out of your control, but not so with God. If the God we believe in, the one who we know loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us, is the creator of the universe, if he's in control, if he's all-powerful, why would we ever worry? And friends, I say this as much to myself as I say it to you. Why would we ever waste a night of sleep, lose a night of sleep over worrying about the details of our lives. Our God created the world out of nothing. Surely he can handle the details of our lives. And he's promised that he will. He's promised that he'd provide for our needs. 
He's promised to always be with us. Hear the word of the prophet Isaiah as he declares God's promise over us. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Your God is sovereign and he's all powerful. And he will do good to us. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. Here's observation two. God created in community. Throughout the biblical creation account, we see God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eight times in Genesis 1, we read, and God said. God creates by speaking. He speaks the world into existence. God's word is his agent, and it has power. In your study this week, Jody had you look at John 1, 1 to 3. And John records this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. So who is the word? You discovered in your study this week that the word is Jesus. Jesus is God's agent of of creation. He was there in the beginning. And all things, every single thing, was created by him. In Genesis 1-2, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit is present, preparing for creation. Now, the Spirit of God isn't a force like on Star Wars. The Spirit of God is a personal being. And then in Genesis 1-26, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And so we have a reference to the Trinity. Now, while I say that, I don't think Genesis 1 alone gives us this idea of the Trinity. I think we need to look at scripture holistically to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. But there's certainly a reference here. The ancient mythologies tell us of these gods who are all fighting against each other to see who would reign supreme. But not so with the biblical account. In the biblical account, God is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a community, this community is one, and it's one in which they loved and delighted in each other. God created in community. And so here's the implication for us. We were made to be in community with God and with one another. God created in community, and he created us in his image. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation because only humanity is created in the image of God. So, if we are created in the image of God, who is three persons in one, a community that loves and delights in each other, then we also must need to be in community. And the relationships of this community are both vertical and horizontal. Vertical, because our primary need for relationship is with God. I don't care if you're married or you're single, your primary relationship, your greatest relational need is God. 
I'm not trying to take marriage lightly. In fact, I think you'll have a better marriage, a better relationship if you recognize that your greatest relational longings for acceptance, for unconditional love, for forgiveness can only be met by God. No human being can do that. But at the very same time, we also need horizontal relationships, whether those are relationships with our family, our friends, our spouse, our children. Now let me speak directly to my married sisters here. Your primary horizontal relationship should be with your husband. But that relationship alone isn't enough. You need deep relationships with other women as well. And let me say this to my single sisters. Just because you're not married does not make you a relational misfit. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not dysfunctional in any way. In this season of your life, however long or short that is, God desires that you also be in deep relationships with others. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, I don't believe that he was solely talking about marriage. I think he was talking about this deep relational need inside each one of us, a need for community. And singles, you can have fulfilling, rich, life-giving relationships other than marriage. God desires that for you. He wants that for you. And now let me say this to all of us. Single friends, you need married friends. And married friends, you need single friends. We need each other. This is how God has created us. You know, when I first came into a genuine relationship with the Lord, I didn't really understand this. See, I thought this whole thing, I was just, it was going to be me and God, and we were going to do this together. And that's all I needed. I believed in what some called Lone Ranger Christianity. Because of the trauma of my past, I didn't want to trust people. And, but because I'm made in the image of God, I need other people in my life. And that means that I need to trust them. And I want to tell you quite honestly that that's hard for me. I've come a long way in how I trust people, but it's hard. And perhaps it's hard for you because to trust someone means that you risk being hurt. But that's what love is. That's the love that God has shown us. Jesus didn't just risk it all. He gave it all. When he died on the cross for our sins, I reflect the image of God best when I am in relationship with others. And that means that I must enter into deep, intimate relationships with them. C.S. Lewis, in a book that he wrote as his wife Joy was dying of cancer, said this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must never give it to, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. One of the greatest joys of my life are the deep relationships I have with those who know me intimately. With the, the, the people that have seen the good, the bad, and the pretty ugly. 
Now, I don't do that with everyone I meet, but there are a select group of people who I've purposely and intentionally entered into relationship with, who I love and delight in, and who I know love and delight in me. And together, we help each other love and delight in God more. We need each other. In fact, we will never understand the fullness of God without deep, intimate relationships with one another. And if I could take that a step further, I would say this. Not only do we need deep, intimate relationships with one another, but we need deep, intimate relationships with those that are different than us. Because without it, we will never fully understand the depth and the breadth of the gospel. We were created in the image of God and we, we reflect his image by being in community with him and with one another. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. Let me move on to observation three. God created purposefully. In the ancient mythologies, creation is this result of a gory, bloody battle between the gods. Humanity comes about by chance as a result of war or the spilling of blood of one of the gods or as a way for the gods to get humans to do the work for them. Creation was just an afterthought. But this stands in stark contrast to Genesis 1, where humanity is God's representative, his vice regent on the earth, made to rule and reign over creation. When God made us, he endowed us with such nobility, such worth, such dignity. The God of the Bible is, a, is purposeful in his creating. He created the world deliberately, intentionally, and in an orderly way. This week in your study, you looked at this as you saw that there's a correspondence between the various days of creation. That before God creates the birds and the fish, he actually creates the habitat for them to live in. That before he creates the land animals, he creates the land for them to exist on. As one theologian writes, what God creates, he preserves. What he brings into being, he provides for. Often we think God is just sort of this distant figure who, who creates the world, sets it in motion, and then he sort of sits back and watches us in the mess of it all. But God is nothing like that. And he proved it when he sent Jesus to the earth as a man to, to live a perfect life and then to die for our sins. In Jesus Christ, God came near. The biblical creation account shows us a purposeful God. So here's the implication for our lives. God has a purpose for your life. Max Lucado, pastor and author, writes, you weren't an accident. You weren't mass produced. You aren't an assembly line product. You were deliberately planned, specifically gifted, and lovingly positioned on the earth by the master craftsman. God has a purpose for your life. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. I don't care how much or how little education you have. I don't care where you were born, where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you. God has placed you on this earth. If you have breath in your lungs, then God's not done with you yet. That's the way he works. Paul writes this in his letter to the church at Ephesus. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, if we only understood the implications of that verse. You are God's handiwork. You're his workmanship. 
The Greek word for handiwork is poiema, and that sounds a, a lot like our English word poem. And so what Paul is saying is, you are God's poetry, his masterpiece, created to do good works. This is your purpose. God has good works for each one of us to do. And as we act as agents of reconciliation, as we point people to Jesus, our great reconciler. N.T. Wright says this, Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim, proclaim love and trust to a world that only knows exploitation, fear, and suspicion. God has placed you each one of us, where we are for a specific purpose. It's not a mistake that you live in the neighborhood that you live in or that you work in the office, the hospital, the school that you work in or that you're a stay-at-home mom. It's not a mistake. God doesn't do that. Wright goes on to say, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Before I went to seminary, I spent 15 years pursuing a career in corporate finance. And I believed that God had a purpose for me in that place every single day of those 15 years. That God was doing something in and through me. And today, I spend my days doing something very, very different as I work here at IBC. My purpose has always been the same. It's always been to know Christ and to make him known. But how that works out in my everyday life looks very different. And I've shared this with you before, but if you ask me, hey, what is it that you do? That when you do it, it gives you the most joy, you feel most alive, you know that this is what God has made you for. I would tell you, it's when I communicate God's word. This is my purpose. And in the same way, God has a purpose for your life. Jody shared with us last week, that the grand narrative of the Bible and of our lives is Jesus' passionate and loving pursuit of us. But can we have some real talk? God doesn't need us to bring about his plans on the earth. He doesn't. You know, often I have to remind myself that I'm not that awesome. <laughs> and real talk, you're not that awesome either. <laughs> And I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I don't think I'm awesome. I'm actually wondering how and why God would use me. And I get that because I sort of waver between these two ways of thinking. But both of them are sinful because they're both rooted in pride. Because what we're doing is we're saying that we're making way too much of ourselves and way too little of God. Do you think that the God of the universe, the one who created the world by the very words of his mouth, who created it out of nothing, could get it wrong? Do you think that he can't use you? I look out at this room, and I see women with stories of God's work in their lives, incredible stories. I see a diversity of gifts, 
I see women who have been uniquely and specifically wired by God for his great purposes. And one of the best things I get to do is I get to encourage and challenge you to live out your God-given purpose for your life. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. We have a God who pursues us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And not only does he pursue us, but he invites us to be part of what he's doing. We get to be part of God's good and glorious work on this earth. We get to push back the darkness and shine the light of Jesus wherever we go. Tell me what's better than that. Tell me that's not worth giving your life to. God has a purpose for your life. But do you believe that? Here's the fourth and final observation. God delighted in his creation. Every time God creates, he declares it is good. Until he reaches the pinnacle of his creation, humanity created according to the divine image with immense dignity, matchless worth, and thus God declares it to be very good. God steps back from all that he has made and he blesses his creation by declaring it to be beautiful and humanity to be very beautiful. God delights in his creation. He drinks in the beauty of all that he has made and it brings him joy. And here's the implication for us. God delights in you. God delights in you. The God who created the world declared it to be good and beautiful. And if we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, then the righteousness and goodness of Jesus is ours. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty. He paid the price that you and I owed for the rebellious life that we chose to live so that now when God looks at us, he sees only the perfection and beauty of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees only the loveliness and goodness of his son. God delights in you. You are loved, accepted, forgiven, and free. Right now, in this moment, the father declares his love for you. You're his beloved daughter with whom he is so very well pleased. The God of the universe loves you deeply and truly, so much so that he gave his son for you. He said you're so valuable, of such great worth to him, that he willingly sacrificed his son so that you could be in relationship with him forever. You, you bring a smile to the face of God. Do you know that? The prophet Zephaniah says that he takes great delight in us, that he rejoices over us with singing. God sings over you. Dwell on the Father's love for you. Drink deeply of it. The God of the universe loves and delights in you. And here's what we would do well to remember. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. If you've ever been to a museum, you've seen a beautiful work of art. As you admire that painting or that sculpture, what's one of the first things you do? You get closer to it, don't you? You get closer to it because you want to know who made this. Was it Van Gogh or was it Matisse? As you admire this beautiful work of art, you immediately think of the creator. 
While the painting is stunning, what's even more impressive is the gifted artist who made it. Yes, as the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but our splendor points us to the splendor of our creator, who is even more fearful, more wonderful than we can imagine. Glenn Packiam writes, as the lead character in the opening scenes, God not only is, he acts. God is all through the opening passage as the only active character. There are no rivals, no one else adding input or ideas. There is simply God. He is clearly the main character. God speaks, God forms, God makes, God calls, God blesses, God commissions. As we begin our journey through the grand narrative of the Bible, what we find is that God is the main character of the story. The Bible is a story about God. It's a story about us and God. But first and foremost, it's a story about God. And as we gaze upon the beauty of this God and his magnificent, loving pursuit of us, it ought to bring us to our knees in worship. And I think that's why Jody had us look at worship as our spiritual practice for this week. Worship is treasuring and enjoying God above everything else. And, and, and as we do it, it overflows to praise, both through our words and through acts of love and service. So while worship includes corporate singing like we do on a Sunday morning in church, it's not just limited to that. You worship when you take a walk and you enjoy nature and you roll that enjoyment back up to God and you give him praise for how he has created you worship when you look someone in the eyes and you tell them how you see God working in their lives. You tell them of the beauty of how God has created them. You see the image of God in them and you roll that back up to God as praise for how he's created this individual. We can worship all the time in many ways and in many forms. The biblical creation account seeks to show us why our God has created. God created so he could show us more of who he is. Creation reveals the greatness of God. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of our creator. And the only right response is worship. Creation reminds us that God is sovereign and in control. That he's all-powerful. Creation reminds us that we were made to be in community with God and with one another. Creation reminds us that God has a purpose for your life. And creation reminds us that God delights in us. Are you trusting in this sovereign, all-powerful, incomparable God? Are you living in true community with God and with others? Do you realize that God has a purpose for your life and are you living out your God-given purpose? Do you truly believe that the God of the universe delights in you? That's the truest thing about you. As we gaze on the beauty of creation, may it lead us to gaze upon the all-surpassing beauty of our creator and king. And might this cause us to worship the only one who is worthy of our praise and of our lives. The splendor of creation points to the splendor of the creator. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and we stand in awe of who you are, who is like you.
you're sovereign and all-powerful. And you are our good father. You have a purpose for our lives. You delight in us. You long to be in community with us. So God, I ask that you would show us more of who you are. Show us more of who you are so that we might love you in greater ways, so that we might know you, God. And that this might lead to worship of the only one who is worthy of our praise. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.